March 28th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chine Rofo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, the World Food Program warns food is getting harder to find in Ukraine as the war grinds on. Ukraine, a country of 44 million people, is running out of food. The World Food Program estimates 45% of the country's people are worried about finding enough to eat. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is in Israel for a rare Arab-Israeli summit as Washington says it won't force a leadership change in Russia. As you know, and as you've heard us say repeatedly, we do not have a strategy of regime change in Russia or anywhere else for that matter. In this case, as in any case, it's up to people of the country in question. It's up to the Russian people. And recovery crews find a second black box from a China Eastern Airline jet that crashed into a mountainside. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. The World Food Program warns food is getting harder to find in Ukraine as the war grinds on, forcing people to resort to extreme measures. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Ukraine, a country of 44 million people, is running out of food. The World Food Program estimates 45% of the country's people are worried about finding enough to eat. WFP calls the country's food supply chain broken. Spokesman Thompson Fury says the systems to feed the tens of millions of people trapped inside Ukraine are falling apart. WFP estimates that one out of five people in Ukraine today are already using some food coping strategies. It is getting desperate. Desperate times are calling for desperate measures. They are reducing food portions. They are reducing the number of meals they consume. Adults are sacrificing the meal so that the kids have something to put um, in their bellies. UNICEF says 4.3 million children, more than half of the country's child population, have been displaced since Russia invaded. The Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, which documents war casualties, says children account for at least 78 of the more than 1,080 people known to have been killed. Aid agencies say relentless Russian bombing has destroyed residential areas, civilian infrastructure, more than 70 health care facilities, airports and bridges. Fieri says supermarkets are empty and warehouses drained of food stocks. He says families in embattled areas are having greater problems finding food, especially in the eastern Ukrainian city of Mariupol, which has been nearly razed to the ground. Lack of access to conflict heat areas and a lack of humanitarian partners on the ground are the biggest obstacles to providing life-saving assistance to families inside of Ukraine. The encircled city of Mariupol is running out of its last reserves of food and water. No humanitarian aid has been allowed into the city since it was encircled on 24th of February. Fury says WFP has deployed enough food supplies to assist 3 million people inside Ukraine for a month. He says the agency is stockpiling food in several areas of the country in anticipation of escalating fighting in some major Major cities. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said on Sunday the United States does not have a strategy for regime change in Russia. This as he begins the Middle East trip in Israel, where he will take part in a rare Arab-Israeli summit and hold talks with regional partners on stored Iran nuclear talks and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. President, the White House, 
made the point that, quite simply, President Putin cannot be empowered to wage war or engage in aggression against Ukraine or anyone else. As you know, and as you've heard us say repeatedly, we do not have a strategy of regime change in Russia or anywhere else for that matter. In this case, as in any case, it's up to people of the country in question. It's up to the Russian people. But what we do have is a strategy to strongly support uh, Ukraine. We've been doing that and rallying partners and allies around the world to do that. That's U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Top U.S. officials say it's now up to Iran to take the tough decisions necessary for it to return to the Iran nuclear deal after almost a year of multilateral talks in Vienna. But some U.S. lawmakers from both major parties are urging caution, saying a bad deal is worse than no deal at all. VOA senior diplomatic correspondent Cindy Sain reports. Iran's foreign minister, Hossein Amir Abdullahian, made headlines in Damascus Wednesday with his statement about the Iran nuclear talks in Vienna. We believe that today we are closer to an agreement in Vienna than ever before. The Vienna talks, underway for almost a year, are aimed at curbing Tehran's nuclear program in exchange for lifting tough economic sanctions on Iran. But the negotiations have been paused. With U.S. officials sounding less optimistic, the two sides will reach agreement to revive the 2015 nuclear deal that former U.S. President Donald Trump withdrew from in 2018. State Department spokesperson Ned Price says it is up to Tehran to make the tough decisions necessary to get the deal over the finish line. An agreement of this sort is neither imminent uh, nor is it certain. And so that is precisely why uh, for the better part of a year, uh, we have been uh, preparing for either contingency, for either scenario. Some experts say the longer negotiations are paused, the less likely it is the parties will reach an agreement. Henry Rome is with the Eurasia Group. Yeah, I think the the longer the pause, the, the greater the risk that the talks enter a kind of zombie state where there is neither a breakthrough nor a breakdown, but Iran continues with its nuclear advancements. The talks had appeared close to agreement, experts say, until Russia demanded its trade with Tehran not be hurt by sanctions imposed because of its invasion of Ukraine. But Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said Moscow has received American guarantees that it can continue its involvement in Iran's nuclear plan, as stipulated in the nuclear deal. This has led some experts to warn that Russia wants to exploit the nuclear deal. Benam Ben Tyler Blue is with the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He spoke to VOA. So Russia has really positioned itself well to cash in from the nuclear trade, the military trade, and is now looking to layer on more direct mercantilist economic trade with Iran. All of this comes at a time when they're hurting over the Ukraine invasion, and they're basically successfully using Iran as a way to bypass that pain. Tyler Blue adds that Iran needs to revive the nuclear deal for economic reasons, and that Tehran's leaders know and an agreement has become a divisive political issue in the United States. 
on Capitol Hill. Most Republican lawmakers continue to side with former President Trump in opposing reaching a nuclear deal with Iran. Some worry the Biden administration might agree to remove the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps from the foreign terrorist organization list to get a deal. Republican Senator Todd Young tweeted, Removing the Iranian Revolutionary Guard's designation as a terrorist group and unfreezing its assets would be like pouring gasoline on a fire. Many Democratic lawmakers also worry about how quickly Iran might acquire a nuclear weapon. But most believe reviving the 2015 Iran nuclear deal is the only realistic way to stop that from happening. Cindy Sane, VOA News. Washington. Russia has walked back its threat to torpedo the revival of the 2015 Iran nuclear deal over recent sanctions imposed on it over its invasion of Ukraine. The move has reopened the way to an agreement after nearly a year of talks and would open the door for Iranian oil to help the world energy crisis. However, the prospect of a return to the deal has not sat well with Washington Arab Gulf allies, particularly Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Reporter Andrew Omar examines the impact of reaching an agreement with Iran on U.S. relations with the Gulf countries and using Iranian oil exports to ease fuel shortages due to the Ukrainian war. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has affected international relations in almost every sphere, including the talks in Vienna over bringing the United States and Iran back into compliance with the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. The United States and other parties to the deal, namely France, Britain, Germany, China, Russia, and Iran, have been meeting in Vienna to craft a revised deal. But Moscow had demanded written guarantees from the United States that Western sanctions targeting Moscow over its invasion of Ukraine would not affect its trade with Iran. Then Russia's chief negotiator at the talks, Mikhail Olyunov, informed the European Union that Russia would accept narrower guarantees, ensuring that Russia could carry out the nuclear work it is mandated to do under the 2015 nuclear deal. That includes a uranium swap with Iran, the redesign of the further nuclear facility, and the provision of nuclear fuel to Iranian reactors. A return to the 2015 deal would see the return of Iranian oil to the market. This at a time when energy supply shortages have brought crude prices to their highest in more than a decade. Iranian crude is looking promising, as are oil exports from other heavily sanctioned countries like Venezuela, which has reportedly been in energy discussions with U.S. officials. But Samir Al-Taki, a fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C., argues that neither Iranian oil nor Venezuela's oil will be enough to ease the energy shortage. Iran cannot export more than 500,000 barrels a day, and it needs rehabilitation of its uh, facilities and infrastructure for the production, which will need huge investments in Iran, which will need, need at least three to four years of build-up uh, to repair the industry. Altaki says the international oil market after the sanctions on Russia is lacking five and a half million barrels a day, and the simple entrance of Iran and Venezuela to the market would fulfill less than one-third of the shortage. The United States has hoped that Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates would boost oil production to stabilize the oil market. But leaders of both countries have reportedly 
recently been declining, President Biden's request. The prospect of a return to the deal has not set well with Washington's Air Gulf allies, particularly Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, two of OPEC's leading crude producers, are long-time adversaries of Iran. Taki said the Gulf states felt that the U.S. is no longer committed directly to the security and the stability of the region. Barbara Slavin, who is director of the future of Iran initiative at the Atlantic Council, disagrees with this assessment. This is a nuclear agreement. Hopefully, if it's revived, it can lead to discussions on other issues. The war in Yemen, reducing tensions in Iraq, guaranteeing freedom of navigation in the Persian Gulf. All of these things can flow from a revived JCPOA. Slavin says that without that as a foundation and with sanctions remaining, it is very difficult for Iran to revive its normal connections with its neighbors and it would be more difficult to de-escalate in the region. She says instead there will probably be more attacks on Americans in Iraq and in Syria as we're seeing under the Trump administration. For VUA, this was Inji Omar from Cairo. The U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan, Thomas West, says he is hopeful there will be a reversal of the Taliban's decision against reopening schools to girls above the sixth grade. This, as Nobel Peace Prize laureate and activist Malala Yousafzai told the Doha Forum that the Taliban should not get diplomatic recognition, quote, if they do not recognize the human rights of girls and women, unquote. Libby Hogan of Reuters reports. Dozens of female students and teachers marched in front of the education ministry in Afghanistan's capital, Kabul, on Saturday. The women held signs that read, Education is our right, against the Taliban's decision to shut girls' secondary schools just hours after reopening them earlier in the week. One student in the crowd, Fatima, expressed her sadness at the U-turn decision. Unfortunately, because of the Taliban, all our schools were closed. We girls are allowed to study same as boys. Islam has given us the right, but the Taliban has taken this right from us. The Taliban's decision backtracked on their previous commitment to open high schools to girls. And after the decision, the United States abruptly cancelled meetings with the Taliban in Doha that were set to address key economic issues on Friday. Sources told Reuters that the talks were to include discussing hundreds of millions of dollars of funding currently held in a World Bank trust fund that is earmarked for Afghanistan's education sector. At the Doha Forum, activist and Nobel laureate Malala Yousafzai had this message for the Taliban. I would just say one thing to the Taliban. Seeking education is a duty of every Muslim. I, I believe in peace talks, I believe in dialogue, uh, but I also feel that at the same time, uh, you know, that they should not be recognized if they do not recognize the human rights of women and girls. The U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan said on Saturday he was hopeful that there would be a reversal of the Taliban's decision in coming days. That's Libby Hogan of Reuters. In other news, Chinese state media reports that crews on Sunday found the second black box, the flight data recorder of a China Eastern airline jet that crashed into a mountainside in southern China. 
The second black box was dug out of the slope at the Christ site about 9.20 a.m. local time in muddy conditions after rain in recent days, state media reported. The device found 1.5 meters beneath the surface of the slope will be sent to Beijing for checks on Sunday. Flight MU5735 with 132 people on board was en route from the southern city of Kunming to Guangzhou on the coast on Monday when it plummeted from cruising altitude at about the time when it should have started its landing descent. In a late news conference on Saturday, officials announced that all of the people on board, including nine crew members, have been confirmed dead. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua Foyd, Washington. The Solomon Islands has confirmed it is negotiating a security deal with China, which has caused alarm in neighboring Australia and New Zealand. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports. A new security agreement is being negotiated by China and the Solomon Islands. In the southwestern Pacific, about 2,000 miles northeast of Australia. A draft official document emerged on social media on Thursday. It details plans that could allow Beijing to send armed police and soldiers to the Pacific archipelago to protect the safety of Chinese personnel and major projects in Solomon Islands. In Australia, there are fears that the agreement could lead to Beijing establishing a permanent military presence or bases in the Pacific Island country. Australia and New Zealand have been the Solomon Islands' traditional defence partners and aid donors. Australian Foreign Affairs Minister Maurice Payne said she respected the Pacific Islands' right to make sovereign decisions, but was concerned by any actions that undermine the stability and security of our region. New Zealand said the plan threatened to destabilise regional security. Kevin Rudd, the former Australian Prime Minister and President of the Asia Society, an international non-profit organisation, told the Australian Broadcasting Corporation that the possibility of a Chinese base in the Solomon Islands was worrying. In the history of Australia's engagement with the Pacific Island states, I think this is one of the most significant security developments that we've seen in decades. It's one which is adverse to Australia's national security interests. When you've got a country as close to Australia's uh, own territorial shores as the Solomon Islands, this is a big change in Australia's immediate strategic environment. The Solomon Islands government said it was expanding its security agreements with more countries and diversifying its security partnership, including with China. In 2019, authorities in Honiara, the Solomon Islands capital, set up formal diplomatic ties with Beijing after severing official links with Taiwan. Australia has become increasingly wary of China's growing influence in the Indo-Pacific region and has increased its aid spending in recent years. In February, the United States said it planned to reopen its embassy in the Solomon Islands because of concerns about China's plans in the region. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. The future for South African wines in China is looking rosé after Beijing slapped huge tariffs on Australian exports amid a diplomatic row. Now South African winemakers are creating vintages tailored for the Chinese market. 
Kate Bartlett reports from Johannesburg, South Africa. Winemakers in the rolling green vineyards of the Western Cape in South Africa knew an opportunity had arrived when China slapped a 212% tariff on Australian wines. Cause? Disagreement over the origins of COVID-19 in 2020. Marcus Ford is the Asia market manager for Wines of South Africa, which represents all local winemakers. And since then, um, you know, merchants who were dealing in Australian wine have been looking for other alternatives, and South Africa is a very obvious place to go. Um, and we've, you know, we've benefited uh, dramatically in the past 12 months. So our exports to China have doubled um, over that period, and, and the momentum looks to be strong. South Africa shipped $31 million worth of wine to China, a 59% increase from the previous year. One company that's benefited is AM Vineyards. They're even making their own blend, catering specifically to the Chinese palate, says co-owner Matthew Caron. We wanted to satisfy the Chinese palate, and that took quite a lot of getting to know the market, talking to sommeliers, getting to really understand what really works well in the market, and then developing a South African product that is made for Chinese palates. Chinese wine connoisseurs prefer mainly red wines, red being a lucky color in Chinese culture. They also favor corks over screw caps and like fancy packaging. However, tastes are changing and the Chinese market is still quite young, says Ford. You could say that in the north of China, which has a a, a relatively robust um, appetite for alcohol and strong alcohol, um, there's a preference for, for rich, heavy red wines. And in the south, there's more openness to lighter styles and white wines. There's a younger generation who've embraced, um, you know, white wines, sparkling wines. Yang Lu, China's first and only master sommelier, says it's hard to generalize about a Chinese palate for a country of over a billion people. But despite some hurdles ahead, the popularity of South African wines in China looks likely to grow. For VOA News, Kate Bartlett, Johannesburg. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 1935 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. This is Science in a Minute. The largest carnivorous dinosaur was not the Tyrannosaurus, but a genus called the Spinosaurus. Scientists report that the Spinosaurus lived in what is now North Africa about 99 to 93.5 million years ago during the late Cretaceous period. The giant dinosaur is said to have lived partially in both marine and land environments. So along with land animals, it also hunted for its food in the water. Over the years, some scientists thought it waded through the water, while others thought it swam to get its prey. In a new study published by the journal Nature, a team of researchers provide evidence based on the density of Spinosaurus bones that the giant meat-eater had bones that would allow them to swim underwater to hunt for their meals. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. They're still trying to figure out what are the specific policies from the White House. 
VOA Asia, your daily digest of top Asia stories. Beijing has especially hazardous levels of air pollution. Blending American and Asian perspectives. China is protecting wildlife. Original reports and series. Education, health, technology. Stories that mean something to your daily life. VOA Asia. Sports fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 16:30 and 18:30 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports. Or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on the Voice of America. International Edition on the Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at VONews.com. Until next time, I am Chinadoffa in Washington, wishing you a great day. Washington!